So now it's my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Joe Matthews. Joe Matthews is the California and innovation editor for Socola Public Square, where he writes the syndicated Connecting California column, which appears weekly in 30 media outlets across California. He also serves as a professor of practice at Arizona State University and as co-president of the Global Forum on Modern Direct Democracy. He was previously a reporter for the LA Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Baltimore Sun. Please join me in giving a very, very warm welcome to Mr. Joe Matthews. Uh, good evening to everyone. Everyone can hear me okay? Um, so this is Yasha Monk, who's a lecturer on government at Harvard University, a senior fellow in the political reform program at New America, uh, and executive director at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. He's author of the new book, The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. Um, a personal question first. Um, you're uh, um, you were born in Germany to Polish parents. You went to college in the UK and you came to the US. Um, how and why did democracy become a focus of your study and writing? Um, I mean, I guess there's a personal and academic answer to that. I mean, part of a personal answer is that my family has had the bad habit of being in the wrong place at the wrong time for about three generations. <laughs> um, uh, my, you know, my grandparents were born in Stettels in Central Europe. Uh, had to flee the, the Third Reich uh, East. They actually survived in the Soviet Union. My parents were thrown out of their own countries when they were 18, 19, 20, um, when Poland had a huge anti-Semitic wave in the late 60s. Um, so, you know, the idea that a political system can suddenly change, that a place that seemed quite stable for a while, for decades, perhaps for centuries, can cease being stable is something that's pretty ingrained in my family's history. Um, you know, and growing up in Europe, um, I could see the slow rise of authoritarian populists. I could see figures like Jörg Haider in Austria in the late 90s, uh, rising people like Pim Fortein in the Netherlands, starting to have real power. So long before Donald Trump was elected, I had a sense that people really are getting quite um, disillusioned with our political system. Um, and I started researching with my colleague Roberto Four looking at uh, whether people actually still agree with democracy in the way that they once did. And what we found was pretty shocking. So among uh, you know, older Americans born in the 1930s and 1940s, over two thirds give great importance to living in a democracy. Among young Americans born since 1980, less than one third to. And there's a whole bunch of other data like that. So okay. you know, part of a personal story, part of an academic yeah. story, um, I started to really think that our democracy might be trouble long before Donald Trump was elected. Okay. We'll get to the millennials a little, in a little bit. All right. Um, but um, defining terms first, um, democracy is sort of one of those words like um, uh, that everyone uses or maybe overuses, irony, accountability, mm -hmm. diet. You know, they've lost some sense of what, you know, they become hard to define. Um, and, um, you know, the American tendency is probably to to define democracy very broadly, it can mean free and fair elections, uh, universal suffrage, civil liberties, and the absence of sort of um, you know other intervening institutions, a monarchy or a church or somebody that sort of can tell the elected people what to do. Um, you know, even culturally, we use it to talk about American Idol or how we you know vote on players to that we want to see in the baseball All Star game. Um, but you propose a sort of narrower definition of democracy. Um, why and, and, what, and what is it? How do you define it for the purpose of this discussion? Well, well I think we really have to, 
realized that our political system has two key elements, right? It's a liberal democracy. Now, liberal doesn't mean liberal conservative in this sense. It doesn't mean, you know, Obama versus George W. Bush. Um, it means uh, protection of indiv in individual rights, of minority rights, um, a commitment to the rule of law and the separation of powers, because what all of those things give us, uh, when you take them together, is the ability for individuals to actually choose how they lead their lives, um, to be able to say what they want to say or not say, to worship in the way they want to worship or, or, or not worship. Um, and those things are threatened when you have either somebody making the decisions for you um, or one dictator becoming very powerful and being able to stifle dissent. Um, now, once you've taken that part of our political system and called it liberal, you can actually use the word democratic in a much more straightforward way. What is the second part of our political system? Well, it's not just that we're free as individuals, but we get to do what we want. It's also that collectively, all of us together, we get to rule ourselves. The word democracy means rule of a demos, rule of a people. Um, and so I think that it is a question of whether our political institutions actually manage to translate popular views into public policies. To the extent that they do, I think our system deserves to be called democratic. To the extent that they don't, um, I, I don't think it is a real democracy. Now, a lot of your book and, and work has warned about threats to democracy, the, the difficulties democracy faces. Let me kind of, this is unusual because I'm, you know, I'm the journalist, so I'm supposed <laughs> to, to be relentlessly negative. But let me take the positive side here. Um, um, you know, more people voted in democratic elections in 2016, I think, than in the, the history of any year previously in the world. Um, uh, international Idea, the, the, the Democratic Election Assistance Organization in Stockholm, had a big report at the end of uh, 2017, State of Democracy, in which it basically argued that democracy was still growing and resilient. You know, statistics like in 1975, competitive elections determined government power in 46 countries, in 30% of the countries, and by 2016, that number was 132, or 68%. Um, the, the report uh, quotes... Um, uh, Michelle Bachelet, uh, uh, just who just left as the president of Chile, and she makes the case that things are hunky-dory. It says, it is easy to lose sight of the long-term gains the world has made in maintaining democracy. By and large, public institutions today are more representative and accountable to the needs and desires of women, men of all ages. Over the past several decades, many states have become more democratic, and notwithstanding obstacles and some setbacks, most of them have maintained that status. Today, more countries hold elections than ever before. Uh, crucially, most governments respect their in international commitments to uphold fundamental rights. More individuals are able to freely cast their votes. Civil society and its leaders can mobilize and engage in dialogue with political leaders. All in all, democracy has produced a domino effect, growing and spreading across the planet. Is she right about all of that? Is she wrong about some of it? What do you, what, well, she's what, right about an important point, which is that when you take the 30 or 50 year view, there really are more democracies now than there were in 1990, when there were in 1960. And, and that is a, a great and inspiring story. And there are some really good signs. Um, you know, a, a few African countries that never had been true democracies, that over the course of the last few years actually managed to get rid of uh, their strongman rulers and held reasonably free elections. Um, so there's definitely good signs. But as a good social scientist, you have to look at it in the aggregate, right? And so I would make two points. The first is that Larry Diamond at Stanford has shown very persuasively that for the past 11 years, we've been in what he calls a democratic recession. 
So for each of the last 11 years, yes, in each country there were, in each year there were some countries that were making democratic advances, but there were many more countries, about twice as many, that were actually receding from democracy, where dictators and strongmen were getting more powerful, were quashing the opposition, were destroying freedom of speech. So in the aggregate picture, it's very clear when you look at the authoritative data from Freedom House and so on, that for the past 11 years we've been going backward. Now I would add another point to that, which is that we had a kind of basic view of how this was supposed to play out. And that basic view was that you know, we knew that democracies in relatively poor countries might not be stable. Right? We knew <coughs> that some authoritarian countries might actually be reasonably successful. But the reason why we had a baseline optimism about the future of democracy in the world was that we were convinced that once you were reasonably affluent, more than about $14,000 GDP per capita, and once you'd had a real democratic history... And that's a, number that, that's a number that comes from Argentina, right? When it had its coup in the 70s, the, exactly. that was the so, number. So the yeah. richest democracy that had been in place for a while that ever collapsed yeah. was in today's dollars about $14,000 GDP per capita. And above that, we'd never seen a case of an affluent democracy collapsing in that way. Right? And so then the idea was, well, once you're at that level of affluence, you don't have to worry, you're safe. And that meant that there was a core set of countries, like the United States, like France and Germany and Italy, where we could say, well, they're safe, they're set. Nothing's going to happen to them. And then as other countries become democratic and become more affluent, they're going to be added to the democratic column. So over time, that implies that democracy is going to spread around the world. Well, the really significant development in the last years is that you see countries that are at about that level of GDP per capita, that had been democracies for a while, actually moving away from democracy. You see that in places like Hungary and Poland and so on. And the second development is that in the countries that were supposed to be safe, political scientists assumed that you would see people being committed to democracy, you would see them reject authoritarian alternatives to democracy straight up, and you would see all of the major political movements and parties in the country accept the most basic rules and norms of liberal democracy. Well, you know, I think I, I, I can bet you that I can say two words that are going to convince a lot of this audience, I hope, that that's not, no longer so obvious, even in our country, in the United States. And those two words are Donald Trump. And Trump is not alone. There's many people like him around the world. Um, we'll get to him later, too. I, I want to... <laughs> I, I, I you have a very sad order in which I'm allowed I've, to say I've things. Heard of, I've heard of him. Um, <laughs> is, there, is it possible to... I, mean, I wish you, I hadn't. If, if you... If, <laughs> If you can you reconcile the 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 the, the narrative, the Larry Diamond narrative, with the, the international idea narrative? Is 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 democracy been like you know the California real estate market before two thousand eight? Did it ex go up? Did it expand too quickly? Did home ownership expand too quickly? Did democracy expand too quickly? Was is there a, was there sort of a a bubble, and now? we're seeing a correction, it, you know, was, it was democracy was kind of a planet wide and an inch deep? Well, no, I mean, so, so that's a, a good thing to try and check, right? So what you've seen for 50, 60 years, uh, in the words of Sam Huntington, is these democratic waves, and then you get the wave coming back in, right? So you had uh, a big democratic wave in the mid-19th century, you had a big one in the 1960s and 70s, when you had a big one when the Soviet Union collapsed in the late 80s and early 90s. And these were 
basically relatively brief historical moments in which a lot of countries transitioned towards democracy, and then democracy didn't take in all of those countries. So over the following years, you would start to see more democratic losses as some of those fledgling democratic systems didn't work out. Right? But what we're seeing now is democracy being threatened in places where they weren't supposed to be threatened. Right? Poland and Hungary were the two great success stories of post-communist transition to democracy. And by the standards that traditional political scientists used, five years ago they were safe. When you asked the great experts of Central Europe, they said, yes, this country has had a real improvement in its GDP, it has active civil society, it has independent media, they've thrown a bunch of governments out for free elections. You know, perhaps it's not as consolidated, as safe as the United States or Germany, but we consider these systems safe. We don't have to worry about democracy continuing to exist in these countries. Well, five years later, the picture looks very, very different. We're about to have elections in Hungary which are neither free nor fair because the Prime Minister has already, in the heart of the European Union, has already taken control of the judicial system, essentially abolished the freedom of the press um, and uh, colonized the Electoral Commission to such an extent that only his party can effectively campaign because all of the others have been financially run out of business through spurious fines. So, uh, so that, to me, is a fundamental transformation of how we see the world, that we can no longer take the stability, even of countries like the United States, for granted. So let's talk about how we sort of measure this problem, the, the people versus democracy, right? And Johnny Cochran is dead, so democracy can't hire him to <laughs> defend it. Um, so how do you measure that? If the, if the public is turning against democracy, how, how have you gone about trying to sort of measure and, sh and illustrate that? Well, so, look, for a long time there was this, there was, it was obvious that people are quite unhappy with parts of their democracy, right? I mean, the famous stat about this in the United States is that Congress has approval ratings in the single digits. So actually, when you ask people what they think of lice, or when you ask people what they think of used car salesmen, um, they somehow have approval ratings in the double digits. Um, so apparently people would rather have lies than a congressman. But, um, <laughs> you know, so that's a little silly. But, but, but you, you've known for a long time there's this deep discontent, that people no longer trust politicians, that um, particular governments have low approval ratings, but in the European context, um, party membership is down a lot, and so on and so forth, right? But social scientists always assumed that there was this big distinction between what they called government legitimacy and what they called regime legitimacy, which to say, people might say, hey, I'm pissed off at Congress, but I certainly think that representative government is the right system of government. So we started to look at that, and we started to look at some existing data to say, well, what are people saying? And we recognized, as I was saying earlier, to our own shock, by the way, that A, um, people don't give the same importance to living in a democracy as they did, and B, they're even more open to authoritarian alternatives to democracy. So in the United States, 20 years ago, one in 16 Americans said that army rule is a good system of government. At the last count, it was one in six. Among young and affluent Americans, it was 6% 20 years ago, and at the last count, it was 35%, a nearly six-fold increase. The, the, now, these have da this data, just so people yeah. may be wondering, where, where, wh who asked these questions? What kind of surveys are these? What, what data are you looking so, at? So, so this is the World Value Survey, which is the most ambitious attempt by social scientists to measure public opinion about politics and some other things around the world. So it's measured in, you know, a uh, hundred-something countries around the world, and the data that I was talking about in the United States was 
uh, was done by, by Gallup, contracted yeah. for this. So it's so it's Gallup's you know, been asking this question about military people's interest in military rule or yeah yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, which, which people are the most against democracy? Maybe I would I might assume um, you know as I'm Gen Xer that it's you know the baby boomers who created great music and ruined everything else. Hmm. Um, but you say it's the millennials. And that that's true in not just the United States, but a number of you know Western European countries. What's going on there? Yeah. So in many places, um, you see the discontent of a political system and the openness to alternatives to it being especially strong among young people. But but it has increased across the board, right? So when you look in, in, in continental Europe and ask a question like, "What do you think of a strong leader who doesn't have to bother with parliament and elections?" Um, again, over the last twenty years, it's roughly doubled. It's now 50% in France and the United Kingdom. And that's across age groups. 50%? Right? Yeah. But, 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 but there is a reason, I think, why young people are more... There's two reasons, I think, important reasons why young people are more pissed off. Mm -hmm. One is, and that it does have something to do with the boomers, that the economic system has... An, that our economic policies have often favored older people. Mm -hmm. That, um, you know... The price of housing is skyrocketing. That's not such a problem if you got a rent-protected um, apartment or if you bought a home 20, 30, 40 years ago. But if you are in your 20s and you have a decent job, um, you actually make okay money, but you have to pay vast sums in order to live right now, then that's a real problem. Uh, especially in Europe, you have labor markets which really favor people who got a job 20, 10 years ago. Um, but it makes it very difficult for young people to find jobs. So you have high youth unemployment and things like mm -hmm. that. Um, but it's also, I think, a lack of understanding of the threats to democracy. For older people, they knew what fascism was like when they had gone through the Cold War and saw the dangers of communism and how bad these political systems were. Um, I think a lot of young people uh, think of these threats as pretty abstract. Um, you know, they say, hey, I can see all of the things that are bad in, in, in this system, and I don't have much of an imagination of what some of these other systems look like. So how bad could things get? Let's give it a try. Is there, um, is there any way to sort of insight research that suggests, you know, <laughs> it's one thing to tell a pollster, right, I prefer that authoritarian who doesn't have to work with Congress, or I prefer military rule, <laughs> and, and, and how that sort of plays out in political action. I mean, is there, are there ways to sort of connect that, or is that beyond where... Yeah, so look, I mean, my, my concern also is you look at those questions and they're, they're a little abstract and it's not really clear whether people are willing to act on it, right? But we've seen the very rapid rise of populist parties across the world, right? So the average vote share for a populist party in Europe in the year 2000 was 8%. Now it's 25%. Right. Um, and now what are populists? What, what, what do we mean by that? Mm. Um, they are movements. Um, it's nothing to do with being popular. It's nothing to do with, with wanting to change economic policy in order to favor you know, ordinary people more. That, that, those are normal parts of politics. And we shouldn't be worried about those. Mm. Um, but it's a particular kind of political imagination in which people say, the only reason why we have any problems in our country at all is that the political elites are, are corrupt and that they're self-serving and that they actually care more about foreigners and immigrants and minorities than they care about people like you and me. Mm. And the only people who really count are people, quote-unquote, like, like you and me. I, as a populist, give voice to the real America 
of a real Italy, of a real mm -hmm. wherever you might be. Um, and only people who support me, only people who are like us, are a legitimate part of a political system. And that's really dangerous because once populists gain power and they've promised to fix everything, it turns out that it's not so easy to do that. Uh, as somebody who I'm apparently not allowed to mention says, um, <laughs> you know, who knew that things could be so complicated? <laughs> who but knew that healthcare was complicated? Who knew the Middle East was complicated? Who knew, he'll say in a couple of months, that negotiating with Kim Jong-un might turn out to be complicated? Yeah. Um, but, but, but obviously they don't want to admit that they've uh, made a mistake or that they've promised too much, and so they have to start to blame. And they start to blame the political opposition for being traitors. They start to blame uh, independent institutions like courts or the FBI or the Department of Justice for being somehow enemies of the American people. They start to dismiss the rulings of courts that might try to step in when we do unconstitutional things by calling them un-American. And that is of a piece with what populists like Viktor Orban have done in Hungary, what said Erdogan has done in Turkey, or for that matter, something like Hugo Chavez has done in Venezuela. Um, just, I, I want to ask you about populism. Uh, first off, the Trump thing, it's not me, it's, it's just state law, you know. <laughs> um, but, but second, um, is the... You I thought state law in the state of California was what you have to criticize no, Donald well, Trump. Well, you know, <laughs> it's complicated. So, um, <laughs> so um, you, you, that, that, very, that very nice definition you gave where you sort of said liberalism, you know, is one thing, the protection, and then democracy, the turning. You um, give the populists some credit, right? You, you put the populists in the democratic camp. They are democratic by your definition, but yet, as you just described, they, if you know, if they get in power, they they're going to start to, to 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 do things that may ultimately threaten the democracy. Why do? You, but you you've made a point. I mean, I've written in your book of of wanting to to acknowledge very clearly that the populists are Democrats in the small d. Why? Well, so, so as an example, I know you you have an interest in direct democracy. So this, yeah. this 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 example might be close to your heart. But look, the Swiss had a referendum um, seven or eight years ago. Um, where a lot of people initiated this referendum because they wanted to outlaw the building of minarets, the, the tower that, that is usually a part of mosques. Um, and it passed with over 60% of popular support. So the Swiss constitution now reads, and I quote, there's freedom of religion in Switzerland, the building of minarets is forbidden, which doesn't make much sense. Um, now, a lot of the press criticized this as being undemocratic. And I don't think that that makes much sense, right? If, if all of the people were allowed to vote on it and 60% voted for it, and democracy means something like rule of the people, it doesn't make much sense to call this undemocratic. Now, what it is, is illiberal, right? right? right. It violates the rights of individuals to free worship, and it violates the rights of, of, of the biggest religious minority in the country of Muslims um, to, to actually exercise the religion. And that's very bad. And, and, and I found the result of that referendum appalling. But to call it undemocratic, I think it's just confusing. It doesn't help yeah. us think clearly about what's going on. That's why I call this authoritarian populism a movement of democracy without rights or illiberal democracy. Yeah. Now, the danger is that over time, this is not a stable political system. Because once you start to suppress the rights of minorities, once you start to expand your political power so that you put all of your cronies in the courts, in the electoral commission, 
um, uh, once you start to make it impossible for the opposition to have a real voice in the media, well, you essentially abolish free and fair elections. And at that point, it becomes impossible to displace a democratically elected president or prime minister by democratic means. So I think what populism is, is its own kind of political system, which I call a liberal democracy. And one of the dangerous things about a liberal democracy is not only that it treats minorities unfairly and unjustly, but also that over time it can degenerate into outright dictatorship. And that's what's happened in countries like Venezuela and Russia and Turkey. And that's what's happening right now, uh, arguably, in Poland and Hungary. So you talk about, I mean, is liberal and the liberal and democracy, the, the two pieces of liberal democracy split up. You, you mentioned illiberal democracy. The other part of the coin is, is sort of uh, an undemocratic liberalism. Um, is, that, is that what the United States is? Is that what Western Europe, a lot of Western Europe is? Yeah, so, you know, I think populists, um, stop clocks are right twice a day. I think populists perhaps are right, you know, three or four times a day. Um, and and they, they, they sometimes write in their analysis, right. right? And what a lot of populists say is, nobody listens to us anyway, right? The system is rigged. Even if all of us want to do one thing, the politicians don't actually pay heed to that. And they're so not wrong, right? I yeah, mean, there's a lot of that. research shows that it's the people with power and the money and interest groups who move the government, and the, most of us don't, right? No, absolutely. So in that analysis, they actually say something. There's, there's a reason why people feel like that, right? Um, and that's because of a huge role that money plays in our politics. It's because of a revolving door between lobbyists and legislators. It's because of the political uh, elite has become a sort of class a part that has often gone to different colleges, lives in different cities, um, probably knows uh, affluent people much better than the people they're supposed to represent. Um, and it's also, by the way, because of a growth of a whole set of bureaucratic institutions and international institutions and treaties that all do a pretty important job, but that take lots of decisions out of public contestations. So when you look at you know, agencies like the EPA and the Community Duma Protection Bureau, uh, when you look at the Supreme Court, when you look at um, independent central banks, you look at trade treaties, you look at all of the international organizations we're a part of, they make a lot of decisions, often good decisions, but decisions that mean that you or I can't decide about particular issues. And so when you take all of that together, yes, I think one of the things that has been going on for a long time is a system of rights without democracy, and that liberal populism is a reaction against that and, and against a bunch of other factors as well. So some, we, as you were talking when we were talking about millennials, some of the reaction is about the, the democracy not producing, the declining or stagnant living standards. Um, are there other things? I mean, is it is it you know changes in the racial, ethnic, you know, diversity of societies? Is it something to do with those of us who work in the media uh, or with technology? Are those factors too? How do they play in? So look, I mean, you've had 50 years of, and in some countries even longer, of real democratic stability in a lot of countries. And now you see that stability being threatened by these populists who are coming in and actually uh, refusing to accept that people with whom they have political disagreements are legitimate by trying to amass more and more power in their own hands, by trying to politicize institutions like the FBI and the Department of Justice. So why is this happening now? Why after these decades when we had much more political stability, 
do we see this moment of acute political instability? Uh, well, if you bear with me for a moment, um, I'm going to tell you a, a story about a chicken on a farm. Uh, and it's the kind of chicken that we'd all like to eat for dinner, which is to say that you know, it gets to run around freely on the farm, it's very organic, it's very local, and all of those things. Um, but, but the other animals on the farm sort of warn it and say, hey, be careful, I know you're leading this happy life and you think the farmer is really nice, but one day he's going to come and kill you. And she says, what are you talking about? He feeds me every day, he's nice to me, why would he suddenly change how he's acting? Well, Bertrand Russell, the British philosopher who tells the story, um, in, his, in his rye, rye style, says that um, you know, one day the, chicken, the farmer does come to wring the chicken's neck, uh, showing that more sophisticated views as to the uniformity of causation would have been to the chicken's benefit. <laughs> now, what he <laughs> means by that is that there's a bunch of scope conditions. As long as the chicken is too thin to fetch a good price at the market, the farmer has a reason to keep feeding it up. Once it becomes fat enough for the market, he's going to act very differently. So I think to understand why this moment is so different, we have to ask the chicken question. We have to ask, what is it that's different in our world that might explain why formerly stable democracies no longer are? And it seems to me there's at least three answers to that, right? So the first is a stagnation of living standards for ordinary people. From 1935 to 1960, the living standard of the average American doubled. From 1960 to 85, it doubled again. Since 1985, it's been flat, it's been stagnant. Uh, that really changes how people think about politics. We never used to love politicians, we never used to completely trust what happens in Washington, D.C. But they said, you know what? I'm twice as rich as my parents were. My kids are probably going to be twice as rich as me. Let's give them the benefit of a doubt. Right? Now they're saying, you know what? I've worked hard all of my life. I'm not doing any better than my parents were. My kids are probably going to do worse than me. I know I'm not allowed to mention Donald Trump, but am I allowed to swear? Um, uh, I, 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 I think so. There are no children here. No, no, okay. At least not mine. I mean, so now, now, now <laughs> it's going to be disappointingly mild, but, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not doing any better than my parents. You know, my kids are going to do really w even worse. Let's throw some shit against the wall and see what sticks. How bad could things get, right? Um, now, there's been a lot of, of debate about this economic thing, and some people say, actually, it's definitely not about the economy because it's not true that the poorest people vote for Donald Trump, I'm the richest people voted for Hillary Clinton, so it's nothing to do with the economy. That's overly simple, right? What you certainly see, and not just in the United States, but in other countries as well, is a very clear <coughs> geographic pattern to populist support. Donald Trump won two-thirds of American counties, but, less than one uh, but, but only about one-third of America's GDP. He did really well in parts of the country that are, where there's less recent investment, where people are less educated, even where a higher share of the jobs might be subject to automation, according to various economic studies, right? Okay, the second thing, though, absolutely is, and there's no point trying to say, is it one or the other, it's both, is a, a cultural change and a change of identity. Look, on the continent where I grew up, that's very obvious. Um, democracy took hold in Europe, in large parts of Europe, after World War II, which really um, ethnically cleansed much of the continent and made countries more homogeneous than they'd been at most points in the history. And in 1960, uh, it would have been obvious to most Swedes or Italians or Germans um, who is a true Swede or Italian or German. And it was somebody who was, in their mind, the reality might have been a little more complicated, but in their mind, ethnically descended 
from the same set of people, part of a sort of extended national tribe. Um, and somebody who was brown or black, somebody who was Muslim or Hindu or for that matter Jewish, certainly didn't belong. Now, thankfully, that has started to change, as we've had many decades of immigration in Europe. Um, a lot of people, the, the laws have changed, actually, and a lot of people have more open-minded conceptions about who can become a real German, a real Swede. They realize that they have fellow citizens who come from many parts of the world. But there's also a real backlash against that, and in a way that shouldn't surprise us, because people have something to lose. If you're not the smartest guy, you're not the best educated guy, perhaps you don't have the most respect in your society, it's very tempting to say, well, at least I'm a real Italian. And those people coming in, they, they count less than I do. You know, so I have something here, right? Well, that guy now might be a politician. That guy now might be your boss. And I obviously celebrate that, but it shouldn't surprise us that some people are, feel like they've had something taken away from them through that. Now, in the, uh, in the United States, the situation is both similar and different. It's different in that we've always obviously been a multi-ethnic society, um, but it's similar in that there's always been a very strict racial hierarchy. And I think it's worth remembering that we've come a very long way in overcoming that racial hierarchy. That despite all of the deep problems and injustices that remain in our country, it's quite clearly better to be a member of an ethnic and a religious, a sexual minority in this country today than 20 or 40 or 60 years ago. Perhaps two years ago was better, but certainly not 20 or 40 or and 60 we, years ago. And a lot ago. of us would think of that as an advance, a democratic advance, right? Because it's included, among other things, greater democratic rights, right? Yeah, I mean, I certainly think of it as an advance. Right. But again, it shouldn't surprise us that the people who had a lot of advantages and privileges from the racial hierarchy that existed in our country for all of its history, have trouble giving it up. Um, and nor should it surprise us that some people have, you know, fears about the future when they have a sense that the identity of the country is changing. From a social scientific perspective, it shouldn't surprise us that that's what people's reaction might be. Now, if you have a baseline economic frustration from a stagnation of living standards, and it often takes this cultural form where people are saying, you know what, as long as I was doing great and other people are doing great as well, I was happy for them. But now that I'm not doing so great, I feel like I've been standing in line for a long time and not really getting uh, where I thought I should be allowed to get. And now that other guy over there is coming in and he's doing better than me, you know, what is that about? If you take those two things together and you add the internet and social media to it, which makes it much easier for people to spread hate, to spread fake news, to spread lies, then you have a pretty dangerous cocktail. So, um, uh, we should maybe turn now, um, uh, time is limited, to the question of, we've laid out a lot of the, the problem, the challenge, how to measure, um, how do you solve it? And, you know, populists always have a, a simple solution. Um, you're not a populist. Because, <laughs> uh, I mean, in your book, you, you mention so many different things that need to be addressed political corruption, the extent and power of lobbying, and particularly in North America and Europe, uh, the decline of civics education, uh, the terrible narrowness of American academic life, which you've experienced personally as a graduate student, um, um, the, the, uh, yeah, you know, the, the lack of meaning in middle-class jobs, uh, housing shortages and cost runs in housing that drive people out of their communities, um, uh, inequality, the need to curb tax shelters, the 
to make the safety net more helpful to people and less tied to employment, more tied to need. Um, and, and it's hard, right? Well, my question is, in this time of democracy under these strains, is those are big things to move. Um, are any of our liberal democracies up to the task of doing all these things that were to save itself? Well, I mean, look, we'll, we'll see, right? <laughs> um, uh, the, the hopeful story of this is uh, that, you know, w you might hope that populists can help us solve this because um, either they can help to change certain things or they might scare more establishment parties and special interests into changing things because they don't want the populists to win and take over. Now, I'm a little skeptical of that. Um, I think that often when the populists come in, they make problems worse. Um, you know, a lot of the things that Donald Trump said about making sure that uh, uh, special interests don't run Washington were perfectly sensible. Um, but I think anybody who's followed the news for the last couple of years know that special interests haven't stopped running Washington. In fact, they have deepened the swamp considerably. Um, and it also makes it much harder for more establishment uh, political parties and movements to actually do the job because they now have a lot less power. Um, there is even less trust in their work, so it's actually harder to confront those problems. So I can't guarantee you that we're going to find the solutions, but, but I actually am pretty optimistic in one sense, which is that unlike the people in uh, Turkey or Venezuela or Russia, we get to fight for what we believe in. We still have freedom of speech. We still can organize. And so, yeah, there's a long list of things that we need to do. And I made a real point in, in, in my book, in The People vs. Democracy, of making sure that I don't just describe the problem and then have sort of 15 perfunctory pages at the end of, oh, yeah, perhaps we could do this, but to take seriously having to offer an answer and saying, here are some of the things that we can do. It's a big list. It's, a, it's, 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 it's not easy to do. Um, but I do think we can actually show people that we can distribute money differently, make sure that, yes, we're in favor of globalization and free trade and all of those things, but we actually have the rules and regulations in place, the taxes in place, to make sure that ordinary people profit from that. That, yes, there are deep challenges to how we think of ourselves as Americans, to how our collective identity is changing, but actually... Um, people can fight the white nationalism of parts of the right, of parts of the current White House, in order to emphasize what we have in common across racial and religious lines, to build a kind of inclusive patriotism. These are all things that we can make a real contribution to. You just mentioned nationalism, and, and you've written and talked about inclusive nationalism, a nationalism that you know, doesn't see people as the enemy, but an adversary that sort of embraces mixed identity. And, um, and Can you explain? Explain a little bit more what you mean by that, because I mean it. It sounds sort of attractive, but you know, hmm. you know, fat-free milkshake sounds attractive. Hmm. I mean, it's a nice concept, but um, d does the thing really exist? How does something like that actually come to exist? Yeah. So look, I mean, it's very clear that nationalism can be a very dangerous force. I, I talked briefly about the history of my family. I think right. it's it's quite clear that um, you know a lot of the suffering was was caused by nationalism and caused by exclusive notions of who belongs in a community, who belongs in a nation. Now, one temptation then is to say, 
well, you know what? Perhaps we should just leave nationalism behind in the 20th century, which is so cruelly shaped. I sort of grew up thinking that. I thought, you know what? Perhaps the best thing we can do is to, um, is to give up on any need for collective identity. And that's been the response to the resurgence of xenophobic nationalism along, among a lot of the left. Um, a second response has been to say, well, there's all kinds of forms of identity that we celebrate. We celebrate various religious and ethnic identities and so on. But we're really worried about national identity because that means celebrating America, which has a, a complicated history with a lot of injustices. Um, it means um, perhaps doing the bidding of these sort of right-wing people who want to hunt USA, USA in a slightly scary way, right? Um, I think these two instincts are, are wrong. Um, in my mind, nationalism is a half-domesticated animal. Mm. If we leave it to its own devices, the worst kinds of people are going to step in and um, stoke the beast until it runs amok, until it actually becomes very dangerous. Um, if we don't have any form of collective identity at all, it's difficult to actually have forms of social solidarity. Why should I care if people in Houston, or for that matter, um, in Puerto Rico experience a flood, right? Why should I care if other people in my country are suffering? They're not part of my family, they're not part of my small town, they're not part of my religious community, my ethnic community. I think that we need a form of national solidarity in order to deal with those kinds of things. And that needs to go beyond just my immediate identity group. And the way to build that is to fight for what it should mean to be a patriot, or even if you want to use that term, to be a nationalist. I have many disagreements with the French president, Emmanuel Macron, but I think that he expressed that very beautifully in a campaign speech in Marseille. He said, when I look around this room, I see people from the Ivory Coast and from Mali and from Algeria and from Poland and from Italy. But what do I see? I see the people of Marseille. What do I see? I see the people of France. And then referring to the far-right populist Marine Le Pen, he said, look here, ladies and gentlemen, from the Front National. This is what it means to be proud to be French. And I think that is right. We shouldn't give up on you know, the US flags and the sort of thumping on about America to the right, we should reclaim it to say that this room is America. I, um, we're, we have just a few minutes before we, we, we turn to the audience for questions. I mean, in some of a, it's a conversation about, we're sort of wondering about how resilient liberal democracy is. Um, and you know, we're talking about the ways that, that, that public attitudes threaten democracy, but there are places around the world very recently where the public has sort of tried to stand up for democracy. I mean, think of South Korea um, uh, more recently. You've seen mass demonstrations in places like Brazil and Romania. You saw some, you know, quite a bit in, in South Africa and in the United States of America. Um, is, are there things about those publics sort of trying to stand up for democracy that hold lessons in them? Or is there something particularly resilient about those publics, those situations that sort of apply to, you know, this sort of, th this, we have these rights, to, we can stand up. I mean, is, are there things that, you know, when you look at those cases that, that say something bigger to you? Um, no, I don't think that there's things about particular countries that are so different from, from others, or that there's sort of a one recipe that we can follow easily. Um, and with populists, you know, one of the really sobering lessons is that um, you need to look at the influence they have over the long run. 
So uh, some of you may have seen about the Italian elections um, about a week and a half ago. Um, well, look, you know, for two decades, this guy, uh, again, I'm not going to mention names, but um, he <laughs> might remind you of certain people. Uh, his name is Silvio Berlusconi. That, I think, is not against uh, California law. <laughs> um, but, you know, real estate billionaire, number of sex scandals, uh, didn't like the country's ju judiciary very much and kept undermining it. Uh, he was really dominant in the, the 90s and 2000s in the country's political system. By 2011, Italians finally were just sick of him. Um, and he was very unpopular. When there was rumors that he was going to resign, thousands of people came into the center of Rome uh, to celebrate this sort of makeshift orchestra and choir assembled um, in front of the presidential palace where he was going to tender his resignation uh, to play Handel's Hallelujah. Um, <laughs> And seven years later, Silvio Berlusconi is back. And he's the kingmaker in Italian politics again. And actually, there are, uh, in some ways, even more extreme right. populist movements. He's the moderate movements. now, right? He's moderate now. There's <laughs> even more extreme populist movements and candidates that actually, uh, you know, cumulatively have about two-thirds of a vote, right? So look, yes, there are some lessons. You have to engage people in serious conversation rather than just condescend to them. Telling them, oh, aren't you uh, a bigot and a racist and don't all respectable people know that you're an asshole anyway, that, that doesn't work very well, right? You have to be clear about your principles, be clear why you think that a particular candidate is dangerous and bad, but do that at, at a level of, 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 of respect and equality, even when it's hard. Mm -hmm. um, you have to actually offer something better. You can't just say, hey, things are already great. Um, and case closed. You have to say, here is how we can actually make sure that the fears you have, the concerns you have are addressed. Here's how we can make sure that the system is going to work for you in a way that it doesn't at the moment. You have to oppose attacks on independent institutions very strongly, because once authoritarian populists who are in power manage to take over law enforcement agencies, to weaken the courts, to limit the media, it becomes more and more of an uphill struggle to actually enforce the basic rules and norms of a democratic system that we need. Um, and the lesson of a lot of countries around the world is that when a four-town populist first run for re-election, the opposition retains a real ability to beat them. Because the system is no longer entirely fair, but it's still fair enough. Once they've been in power for 8 or 12 or 16 years, the playing field becomes so uneven that it's basically impossible to beat them. Thank you very much. Um, I think yes. this is... Uh, hi, Alison Ford. My question is about the uh, role of social media in perhaps advancing the rise of um, illiberal people such as Donald Trump. I'm wondering if you think that that played an important role in this trend. If so, how would you address that, bearing in mind also the importance of freedom of speech in a liberal democracy? So I think the way to think about the role of social media is that it sort of pulverized the media gatekeepers, right? 20 or 30 years ago, who was allowed to really have a voice in a political system? Well, it was the people who owned radio te or television stations, newspapers, magazines, publishing houses, all the people whom those owners uh, wanted to give a platform. Now, in many ways, that was bad. It limited a lot of minority voices. It would have made it much harder for people like the courageous students at Parkland High to develop a real voice. But it also had good effects, because it also meant that some people who just 
spread lies who are outright racists weren't allowed into that kind of conversation. Um, so what you've seen is um, a democratization of a political discourse, um, which doesn't necessarily favor bad people over good people or um, you know, autocrats over democrats, but it does favor the forces of chaos and instability over those of continuity, because you can't structure it in the same way anymore. Now, one way of answering this is uh, becoming increasingly popular in Europe, which is to actually uh, censor and fine social media platforms if they allow you know, forms of hate speech to be hosted there and so on. Um, I think that's going too far because of the First Amendment, at least in the United States. Um, I think we can definitely have forms of economic and social pressure on Facebook and, and, and Twitter to ensure that they actually um, enforce the community guidelines which make a reasonable amount of sense, but aren't enforced. But I think there's something beyond that that we have to do, which is that we have to actually fight for our political values, not limit the supply of noxious ideas, but make sure that there's less pickup of them. From Plato to Aristotle and from you know, Rousseau to the Founding Fathers, every set of political thinkers who thought about um, how to make a self-governing republic work talked about the importance of transmitting our values from one generation to the next. And we don't do that anymore. We barely teach civics in high school. Makes you alluded to this earlier. At a, at a place like, like Harvard, we, don't, we, we point out to people what's bad about our political system. And that's fine. That's part of our job as well. But we barely talk about why it's better to live in a liberal democracy than to live in, in Russia or China or Iran or Venezuela. And so I think that's something that each of us can actually do. We can go and fight for our political values in a way that seemed abstract 20 years ago, but is vital now. How do we get people back to where they are learning, of, uh, having a liberal education? We need to fight for much more of a space for civics in high schools. Um, even at the college level, we actually need to educate people about what the basic principles of our political system are, why it's so uh, important to have individual self-determination and collective self-rule. Um, and it's a task for all of us as a society to talk about those things. You mentioned Tocqueville. Well, Tocqueville was struck by the degree to which Americans actually discussed politics and cared about their political values. And I think we've lost a lot of that. Thank you very much for illuminating the fact that we the people are partly responsible for the fact that <coughs> liberal democracy, at least in some countries, seems to be on, you know, barely in ICU, uh, barely surviving. Uh, my question has to do with the article that you published this morning on Slate Magazine Online about the strongman and how some people would like to, to uh, vote for somebody like that. Uh, the problem with the polling, every time that I hear one, is like the man who's being invited to a very large banquet and after having two you know, small hors d'oeuvres is asked to, to leave completely uh, hungry. And in this particular case, you are asking uh, that, uh, you are t telling us that percentages favoring a strong leader and open to, to democratic alternatives by ideology, of which 13% of liberals, 22 of moderates, and 30% of conservatives would prefer a strong leader. My question is, was there a follow-up question to that? Asking the same people, would you also vote for a strong leader if it came from the other side that you mm. don't approve of? The yeah. other question, the other um, 
One had to do with the percentages favoring a strong leader and open to democratic alternatives. And here, of course, it's interesting that the young people seem to be more in favor of that. Was there a follow-up question in which uh, people were, were asked, why is it that you prefer a strong leader rather than a democratic one? Mm. And is it, because, is it because you have not been heard? And do you know of any other alternative to democracy where you will be heard? So there's limits to how many of these questions you can ask in survey research, which is why now um, uh, some colleagues of mine are, are starting to actually go back to people who, who answer in some of those worrying ways in these surveys and do in-depth and personal interviews to sort of get a better sense of, of, of what they actually mean by that and what motivates them by that. Um, but, you know, I, I want to make a broader point here, which is that um, it's very tempting, you know, the, the most salient case of democratic breakdown in, in, in the history of the last hundred years is obviously the Third Reich and the Nazis coming to power. And so when we think of what it looks like to embrace an alternative to democracy, or what it looks like when democracy breaks down, it's very easy to picture that. And I think that's dangerous for a number of reasons. Because if your threshold for whether you should be worried about the future of, our, of your democratic system is, you know, are there people doing Hitler salutes with big black boots, walking around the center of town, you know, with torches, then the answer is, well, no, obviously not. Well, in Charlottesville right? so there were. I mean well, so there were a few <laughs> people, but, 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 but the point is that in most countries, that's not actually how democracies ended, right? The way they ended is not that people have this deep preference for an alternative. It's that they no longer have the understanding and the commitment of a democratic system to recognize when somebody is a danger because he's saying, just trust me, let me do whatever I want, and I'll fix it, right? And so you don't have to have broad social agreement on what exactly is going to come after, right? Once the thing comes, a lot of people are going to say, well, I didn't like that. <laughs> but as anybody who has lived in the dictatorial regime knows, at that point, it's pretty difficult to get rid of a dictator. Is there a liberal democracy in the world that you would highlight as having some particularly robust attributes? Some countries that are doing a little better than others. Um, you know, one of the countries that is often mentioned, and if only because it's sort of Americans' fantasy of where to go if everything goes deeply wrong, is Canada. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but you see some similar developments there as well, right? So you had a mayor of Toronto called Rob Ford, if anybody remembers him. Um, he was also a four-town populist of, of a certain kind. As a mayor, you have less ability to act out on that. Um, but he certainly had that kind of discourse and that kind of appeal. Um, and there are, uh, you know, recent elections there for the leader of a conservative party in Ontario, um, where you actually had some very similar Trumpist-ish candidates rising. So, um, you know, certainly there are some countries in the world that have done better at making everybody share in economic growth where the political system feels more responsive, that have done better in dealing with the challenges of a multi-ethnic society, and we can learn certain things from that. But I don't think there's any country that's safe. Five, ten years ago, people would have said Sweden. Well, now the Sweden Democrats, which are a far-right, xenophobic party with actual roots in the neo-Nazi movement, are polling at about 20%. Hi, I'm Terence McNally. Um, uh, yesterday, I happened to interview uh, Arlie Hochschild, about her book, Strangers in Their Own Land. And uh, she spent five years, you know, it's not a survey, she spent five years in Louisiana asking folks 
who fit the Trump voter or the, uh, are, are, you know, attracted by populism. And what she comes up with, and I, I assume you know this, is this deep story that she thinks infuses them. And it's similar to what you said. I've been in line for a long time for my piece of the American dream. I got stalled. Real wages haven't raised since 73. I got stalled. And now other people are cutting in line. And the president seems to like the people cutting in line better than he likes me. And I'm pissed. Trump is the answer. Um, what I asked her was, if that's the story that leads to where we are, what's the story that makes the future more inviting than the past? What's the story that takes those emotions and makes it a yearning for something in the future rather than a fear? Um, you mentioned inclusive nationalism. What else is the story? There's two things, by the way. So one is that Ali Hochschild's book, I think, brings out really nicely that intersection between uh, culture and economics, right? Another way of putting that is that I was talking to, to a politician who was saying, well, you know, 25 years ago when I asked people in my district, who are you? They might have said, I'm a teamster, you know, I'm a foreman in a factory, uh, I'm a steel worker, something like that, right? Today they might actually, you know, the material standard of living in that, in that district hasn't gone down, um, but they don't have jobs that give them the same amount of pride and that give them the same amount of earned identity. And so now when you ask people, who are you, they might say, well, I'm white and I don't like those immigrants coming in, right? And so that's one other way in which those two things are sort of connected. Well, what's, what's, what's the story? Well, one thing is that we need to find a story of who we are as Americans that makes sure that it stands up to the discrimination and the injustice in our country, to the attacks from the Trump White House and other people on the far right, but that also shows what we have in common and makes people, including white people in, in rural Louisiana with Ali Hochschild studies, uh, feel like they are a valued member of that group as well. So it's to find a real story of, of us, a real story of togetherness. And I think forums like Zocalo Public Square actually do a good job trying to explore that. But the second is um, that we need to move along the line, right? That we need to make sure that there are, again, improvements in real wages in a way that there haven't been in a long time. And that's due, to a large degree, to political choices. There is economic growth. There are gains from globalization, right? And we can make sure that more ordinary people get those. Well, the last tax reform isn't helping us to do that, right? right? We're not doing very much to make sure that rich individuals and big corporations actually pay the taxes in the United States. It would be quite easy to um, prosecute people more and to... Uh, detect more if people hide their money in tax havens, right? But we're not trying to do that. So there's a whole bunch of things there that we could do. When you think about real wages, part of the reason there is housing. Well, people in LA know that. The housing prices here are going up very rapidly, right? Well, you know what? We need a politics, and those politicians are actually trying to build the housing stock and to control housing prices rather than promising people that they're going to make housing prices more and more expensive. Hello. Uh, first of all, thank you for your time. Uh, my name is Robert Noyola. I'm actually a local Los Angeles bartender, so hopefully I've served some of you guys. <laughs> uh, so um, on my side of where I work, I hear a lot of uh, political opinions. Um, and <laughs> the, the later the night, the more political yeah. opinions, I imagine. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating to me, um, and I, um, I love coming to events like this because I, you know, I, I don't steer left or right. I'm pretty centered. Um, my question is more geared towards, uh, do you think that the distrust in government comes from uh, a censorship 
of uh, when you were speaking of uh, First Amendment rights. Uh, there seems to be a censorship of more uh, conservative uh, uh, views um, being like, you know, banned on YouTube or banned on Twitter. Certain people's accounts get suspended because they have those types of views. Versus if you lean more towards the left, those views don't tend to get censored at all. And I wonder if you think that there's a distrust in government or democracy because of that. I'm not sure that I completely agree with analysis, and I don't, I don't think that sort of explains a, a distrust in government exactly. Um, but what I do think is that um, there's too much of a temptation on both ends of a political spectrum in just wanting to speak to people who are like you and being outraged and angry when somebody sort of penetrates a little bubble of, of like-minded people who has a different point of view. And that far too often, when we disagree with somebody, we don't say calmly, hey, I hear where you're coming from. This is why I disagree with you. These are my principles. You know, what are your principles? Let's have a conversation about it. And instead, people attempt to say, well, you think that? Then you must be a bigot or a racist, and, you know, F you, right? Um, and so I don't know if that exactly drives distrust in government, because I don't think it's government who's doing the censoring. Um, but, but I do think that it, that it sows deep social divisions. So, so, so let me uh, you know, end by saying this, because I think it, 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 it's relating to that, which is that you know, we really have to think about how we heal some of our social divides. And you know, I know that sometimes when I talk, people sort of tell me that, that I'm very depressing. So <laughs> uh, sorry if I've depressed you. Mm -hmm. um, but but I actually, I'm not depressed by this political moment. And one of the reasons is that when I came of age politically, I cared about politics. But I thought the stakes of politics were, were sort of limited. You know, they were real, but, but, but in the end, we knew that our country was always going to be a democracy. And Well, I don't think that anymore. And that's inspiring. Because unlike the people in, in countries like Russia and China and so on, we still have the ability to do something about that and to actually fight for our values and to have those conversations across the political divide and to make sure that we come up with a story of us that actually works. I think the best image that I've heard for that was, was in a talk by Amos Oz, who says, look, there's this big fire burning out in the world. Um, and it can seem really daunting, because all we have is you know, a little bit of water in front of us. And if I go and pour that water on this huge fire, it's not going to do anything. But you know what? Uh, you guys did a great job organizing this event. There's a ton of people here today, right? And if, if each of us takes our own glass of water and pours it into the fire, then together we might actually be able to extinguish it. So let's get to it. <laughs> That's a great point to end on. Before we close, I'd like to thank the Daniel K. Inouye Institute, our co-presenter this evening. I'd also like to thank all of you for coming out in such a big crowd and joining us. And please stick around afterwards for drinks um, with our featured guests and also with each other. Skylight Books is also outside. They're selling copies of Yasha Monk's newest book, Yasha, uh, The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. And finally, one big round of applause for Joe Matthews and Yasha Monk. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>